So we were kind of arguing about this before we started recording just now. And I was saying that this movie actually starts with the flashback. It starts with him in Vietnam, but you're saying that that can't be a flashback because it's where we start. <laughs> I mean, in terms of movie watching or movie viewing, I think that the the beginning of this movie is him in Vietnam. It's not him remembering Vietnam. And then we jump forward like 10 years or whatever. Yeah, then we're back on American soil, back in New York City. Okay, we're going to have to agree to disagree on this one. Everybody message and tell Cooper that he's wrong because he is. It definitely starts in Vietnam, moves to New York City, and then has flashbacks of wartime. But why didn't they do one of those things where it's like, you know, Saigon, 1960-whatever, and then, like, give us the... Oh, actually, that would probably make it more like it was a flashback. Oh. <laughs> All right, I'm willing to reconsider this one, potentially. So um, shouldn't we explain what we're watching here? Yeah, well, welcome to Bad Movies and Beer. I'm Cooper. <laughs> I'm Nolan. And uh, today, we are discussing the vigilante justice movie, The Exterminator. Nice, you got it right. I did. I've been calling it The Eliminator <laughs> off and on for the last two years. Uh, no, it's The Exterminator. And, um, yeah, it's the story of... The man they push too far. That's the, <laughs> that's the tagline. Yeah, so we start off in Vietnam with some non-flashback war scenes. Okay, but before we get into exactly what's happening, the reason we're talking so much about flashbacks is because today's beer that mm. we are discussing is actually called Flashback. Yeah, this one is called Flashback. It's by Forked River Brewing. Uh, they're out of London, Ontario. Canada. Canada. Uh, I'm, I'm really interested in this. This is a rhubarb wheat ale. Have you ever had a rhubarb beer before? I don't know what rhubarb tastes like. So the answer to your question is no. The only time I've ever even had the opportunity to eat rhubarb would be like in a pie, but it wouldn't be just like be rhubarb on its own. It'd be like strawberry rhubarb and I hate strawberries, so I would never fucking eat it. <laughs> So uh, I, I don't know. Did you what not have a, like. like a rhubarb plant in your backyard growing up or any of that? What? Is that a, is that a thing? Yeah, it grows so easily. We definitely did. Um, so some people will cut it up and put it in pie. Or you can also just sort of soak it or boil it in water. And then it gets kind of soft. And then you almost have like a rhubarb jam or almost like a rhubarb applesauce kind of thing. I'm going to take a moment to speak to our American listeners. Uh, please don't take the casual nature by which Noel was like, didn't you have a rhubarb plant in your backyard to mean that all Canadians have rhubarb plants in their backyard? <laughs> we don't. I don't know what the fuck he's talking about. We do. Like 98% oh, of what? us. That's crazy. Cooper was the like 2% who didn't have rhubarb in his backyard. Not true. It's okay. Uh, I like this. Um, I'm excited. It's an American wheat beer. Uh, I find that the American style wheat beers have less of the very bitter flavor. Uh, that some of the more traditional European wheat beers do. So I'm excited. There On the can, it says it's delicious, unpretentious, and fun. So Perfect. Yeah. It's like it's describing us. <laughs> uh, I'm excited just to find out what rhubarb tastes like. So why don't we crack this beer open and see what's what. Let's do it. Okay, so as mentioned, this is a kind of like vigilante movie, very much born out of the Death Wish, you know, success of Death Wish in the uh, early 70s. Kind of an exploitation movie. They're trying to lure people in with gratuitous violence and so forth. Uh, and that's more or less what we get. We get a classic 70s style film company logo to start. It's Avco Entertainment. And the movie literally starts with a bang. There's an explosion that sends a man flying through the air. We are smack dab in the middle of the Vietnam War. Flashback. There's <laughs> Fuck off. 
There's many, <laughs> there's many more explosions, gunshots. There's a helicopter, and we see two Americans taken prisoner by the Viet Cong. Now, one of them is our main character, John Eastland, along with his best friend, Michael. And the next time we see them, John is strung up in a POW camp while Michael is held at gunpoint. Yeah, things are not going well for our uh, American fighters here. It took me a second to be like, okay, where are we? And then very quickly through stereotype, you knew it was Vietnam. Well, hang on a second. <laughs> through stereotype, like, I mean, yes, there's yeah. Asian guys there. They're speaking Vietnamese. I presume it's Vietnamese. But what, what, do, you, what do you expect them to be in English? We mentioned, like, blonde Swedish guys, of course. No, it was true. But on. I think our first, like, picture of them is, like, in the bushes, wearing hats. Like, they pop up in surprise. So it was, I don't know, I guess stereotype may not be fair, but it was it was quick to know where it was. The explosion that sends, I think, uh, John through the air and like down a hill is just absurd. They're getting a lot of camera shots from the air. Uh, somebody who was in the production of this definitely owned like a helicopter or had their helicopter's license. Or a crane. Yes. A crane shot maybe. <laughs> crane yeah. shots, yeah, for sure. Um, so they're captured here in this POW camp and, and what's happening to them? Well, the guards at the camp want to know when an attack is going to occur. And to show they're serious, they chop off the clearly fake head of another prisoner. This does not even look a little bit real. Oh, my goodness. The rubber makeup head that pops up. (laughs) He uses such little force to cut this head off. It looks like like he's like trying to get butter out of a butter dish. Exactly. He puts (laughs) no effort into slicing this guy's head off. The size of sort of knife he has and the amount of sharpness that it must be is just impossible for that to actually work. Oh, it comes clean off. I almost feel like there's like a hook on the back of the fake head with a string and someone like pulled on it to make it fall <laughs> off because he does not really go through there. No, exactly. So it was it was pretty funny. Oh, for sure. Now, with all of the attention on this, Michael manages to get free, garrot the guard closest to him, get a machine gun, and start shooting guards. Uh, This sequence is hilarious. (laughs) One guy gets lit on fire for absolutely no reason. Uh, A different guy literally gets launched backwards into a pond. You can see the platform that launches him come (laughs) out of the ground. It's ridiculous. Yeah. So I don't know a lot about this movie coming in, and very quickly... I'm starting to question the budget of the film, right? It's, uh, I think you see a downed helicopter and inside it are the sort of fakest skeletons of dead soldiers possible. So I was really laughing at a lot of the stuff that was happening here. I, I didn't know much about the movie. I didn't know whether this was supposed to be, I didn't recognize the company that made it, but I didn't know if at the time this was going to be sort of a big movie. I think maybe they hoped so. And you mentioned budget a second ago. I'm going to guess that 95% of the budget of this movie just went into this opening sequence because none of the stuff we get later on is anywhere near the scale of this with the explosions and the helicopters and like the effects and stuff. Like This is where they kind of shot their wad early, I feel, <laughs> to make it feel like a big budget production. And then we quickly just devolve into like no-name actors in like gritty <laughs> settings. Yeah, it's true. It was it was hard to tell uh, at the beginning, um, and it was because it was from 1980. I was trying to compare it to other films I thought around a similar time that would be taking place, and it popped into other sort of uh, like Apocalypse Now came up to me, and other kind of war sure. movies that were of similar. Can't era. stop the music. Yes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's another New York classic, right? Of course. Uh, <laughs> so it, it definitely was falling short of those ones. So this is where I started to kind of piece together that we were going to be watching something that was lower budget. Oh, definitely. And speaking of New York, we cut to New York City flying over the Upper Bay past the Statue of Liberty and then the city of New York while we hear a gentle country song called Heal It. Uh, This song, I'm like, what the (laughs) fuck did we get here? (laughs) Yeah. um, 
I was definitely listening to the lyrics and thinking about how it was going to focus on our sort of veterans from this war scene we saw earlier and trying to have them get back into regular life. And based on the cover and things I'd heard about this movie before, I knew that that wasn't going to go so well. No, he gets pushed too far. <laughs> yeah, happens to him. Yeah. But before that happens, we get some shots of some guys loading, unloading trucks. Michael is definitely one of them. And then we see someone in an office make what looks like a payoff to some organized crime types. Speaking of stereotypes, these guys looked particularly, uh, you know. As soon as you see them walking, you know they're mafioso. There was no questioning what they were there for, uh, both their stance and the dress and the way they sort of carried themselves. You knew they were there to pick up their bribe. We also see three punks breaking into one of the storage units where they store crates and stuff from these trucks and helping themselves to several cases of beer that are inside it. Now, Michael, almost done for the day, gets a visit from John and asks if he wants to go for a drink. He even agrees to pay if John will push his last cart down to stall 34, which just so happens to be the same stall that these punks are taking the beer from. These are not intimidating thugs. No, I mean, well, they pull a knife, which is intimidating as soon as John confronts them. But Michael shows up, just immediately disarms them. We get like a semi-ridiculous fight scene here with some awful music and just laughable sound effects. I love that he decides to start crashing cases of beer down on their heads. It's pretty funny. <laughs> yeah, he just pulls a stack down on them. <laughs> yeah, and then he beats them all. Michael, uh, our character Michael, beats them all and calls them all turkeys. Uh, which is <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now, John is pretty much useless in this whole fight, much like he appeared to be in Vietnam. Like We get the impression that Michael's been doing most of the heavy lifting in this, uh, this friendship for the last, you know, 10 years at least. Yeah, I definitely assume at this point that Michael is the main character of the movie. Based on the things, like, I, d I didn't know anything about this movie, and except for that I knew that there was a person who's going to be, like, kicking ass in very violent ways. And my assumption at this point in the movie is that that's Michael. Uh, that seems like a fair assumption, because, again, John has not indicated in any way, shape, or form that he's capable of uh, some of the violent acts we're going to see a little bit later on. In fact, he's very rattled by this encounter, and later he notices some blood on his chin, and immediately flashes back to the war. So we get, this is, I believe, our second flashback. In your opinion, probably our first one. Yeah. Regardless, there are many more to come. Meanwhile, Michael goes off to see his kids before school, but unluckily is ambushed by these beer punks, which, how on earth did they know where he lived and or would be? Yeah, this was really poorly contrived. He says, like, he goes and sees his kids and wishes them to have a good day. And then he starts walking through like just boarded up places. It's the bombed out like bad areas of New York that were very prevalent in the 1970s, like late 70s. Yeah. And so he's walking through these on his own and they jump him out of nowhere. And we have just this really horrible action scene. Well, they beat the hell out of him and then they grind like a garden rake into his back, which apparently paralyzes him. Like, I don't understand. No, no. I think it's the neck break. They do a very, so they also wrap a chain around his neck and then yeah. someone pulls on his head. They kind of like reef it up and they use very clear sound effects to make like a cracking sound when the guy brings his neck up. So I think that is what paralyzes him, not the rake to the back. I don't know, but they really lingered on the shot of that rake scraping down his back i don't know <laughs> they do do that for sure i think they're trying to show you how much they they want to get back at him for embarrassing them but i think it was the neck pull that snaps his neck I, that makes more sense than the rake so i'll give that one to you we'll split it we'll call it a draw with a little flashback <laughs> thing from really uh now john presumably discovers his body we don't see who discovers his body but what we do know is john does an absolutely terrible job of breaking this news to michael's wife 
he shows up at a park where she and the kids are, says hi to the kids, and then basically goes right into it. Doesn't even try and embrace her or anything. He's just like... This morning, Michael was mugged. What? His neck has been broken. And it seems that he's going to be paralyzed. No! Possibly for the rest of his life. What? <laughs> I found this really strange, the way that uh, he, he decides to break this to her. Maybe life in New York is so gritty that, like, everyone's kind of used to this. But you would have taken her or maybe, like, taken the kids to somewhere else so they could be cared for while the wife had a chance to take in all this information. You're not going to drop this information on her in the middle of a public park while the kids are playing. Maybe start by, like, I need to talk to you or I've got some bad news or you should sit down. He just goes right into it. It makes no sense. Uh, speaking of going right into it, after a quick shot of Michael in the hospital, we cut to a gang member strung up in an abandoned building and John about to go to work on him with a flamethrower. So we are just right, <laughs> we've just right into this. Yeah, there's a lot of quick transitions in this movie where you're not sure how they got to that place. That's one thing I noticed. I didn't hate it because it kind of kept it moving. At yeah. times I found this movie really dragged. And so I didn't hate when we kind of moved into the action fast. So I, I didn't care how we captured that guy. I was glad he was there. This is, I get what you're saying about getting into the action, but this is like the absolute smallest amount of character development you could possibly do. Like, <laughs> you know. What do you mean? They showed us at the beginning how Vietnam affected them. You well, know what's happening what? here. <laughs> no, we're, we're, we're having to connect a lot of dots. Yeah, There's no, no like back and forth. There's no him grappling with this. It's just tells the wife, now he's got a dude strung up with a fucking flamethrower. We didn't see the breakdown, right? No. We, we had that one flashback where he got cut and that was about it. That was it. He asked this kid for information on the mugging and finds out about a clubhouse the gang uses for parties and the such. And wouldn't you know it, They've got one happening right now. It's the three punks along with a few women, one of whom is topless for seemingly no reason at all. She's just topless. <laughs> no, that's just how she likes to party. That was, I, I that, mean, I guess. That was yeah. my interpretation. I don't know. We find out later that she was uh, a lady of the night. Yes. Well, that's also a pretty common thing in New York in the late 70s. John busts in with a machine gun and after telling the girls to get the fuck out, blows one of the punks away and takes the other two. And uh, the whole time this is happening, the song Disco Inferno is playing in the background. <laughs> it's the only like recognizable uh, music in this whole movie. I noticed that too. Um, I guess they assumed that was playing at the party. Um, but it definitely fit with kind of the fun and the action. I actually, I like this scene. I like uh, him taking those ghetto ghouls down. They have a quick cut of him with the M16 before he gets in there. And he uses it really quickly. What does he do to the two punks that he like kind of knocks out and drags away? Well, he ties them up in the basement of an abandoned building. And again, lucky there were so many of those in New York in the late 70s. And after another quick flashback, just leaves them there with like rats who, again, are we going to connect the dots and assume that the rats are just going to fucking like eat them? Or what's the deal? Yeah, I think so. Um, one of the two goons is a very large man. And John does not have a lot of trouble moving him. He kind of like grabs him by the legs and just drags him down. No problem. And yeah. I, this is, this kind of comes up a few times in this movie where John is able to do almost superhuman feats of strength, even though he's a small man. Well, he's got the power of revenge on his side. It's true. And, and I guess he's got the sort of PTSD power, it seems. Not that I want to joke about PTSD, but it, no. it, it seems like that's what they're looking at, right? Like that sort of... He snapped and he's going back to what he acted like in war. Well, but again, we are connecting the dots on this. Like we are meant to infer that from these flashbacks. Oh, They're yeah. not doing a good job. They don't say clear. Um, when you asked earlier about we have to assume the rats eat him, we do sort of intro some new characters, including the police here. And they do mention that they found two bodies eaten by the rats. Okay. And one of them is still alive. Ah, so not fully eaten. then. No, just messed up pretty badly. Yeah. 
Uh, this also seems to be a theme throughout the movie. John doesn't really care about finishing people off. He just wants to make them suffer. And he does that. We cut to the crime scene. You mentioned we're going to meet some police officers here. We meet the detective who's going to be after John for this murder. He's Detective James Dalton. And we also meet the mobster behind the protection payout we saw earlier. That's Genio Pontavini, who, according to his contacts in Washington, is going to have to lower the price of meat, which he doesn't like. <laughs> this is a funny scene where they introduce him. He is, yeah, a stereotypical old mafia Don. He has this young floozy on his arm, um, and he's sort of all about business. It seems like his business is meat as well, right? Yeah, the uh, the black market meat trade, or is he controlling the prices of meat? I don't know. This is it does <laughs> seem like that's what the case is. He he sort of controls the cost of meat on the east coast. But like the government's aware of this and just letting him operate. It's so strange to me. Yeah, they're just, they're assuming that they're in bed, right? I guess so. Back to that detective. He gets a lead on one of the girls from the party from a bartender. Turns out she's a pro, like you mentioned, lady of the night. And the detective catches her hooking and arrests her to get information on the shooter. Yeah, it's about this time in the movie that I'm like, is this where he's going to start cleaning up the town? Like, is this the point of the movie? I didn't know quite as much as you going in. You introduce it that it's going to be a vigilante, and this is where I'm starting to be like, this is a vigilante movie right now. It's on. Yeah, and actually, this is when, I, I don't want to give this movie credit for a lot of things, but we kind of get a nice cut here from the detective asking the girl what did he look like to a close-up of John at the hospital. So we're getting that nice transition between scenes. John tells Michael that he found the guys that did this to him and he's taking care of it. The flashback vibes continue as he mentions how it felt like he was back in Nam. Tells him not to worry about Irene and the kids and he's got an idea for a way to get some money. I'm pretty sure that's going to involve that mobster. And right on cue, we cut to him trying to train his dog to attack intruders. Foreshadowing. <laughs> yeah, they, they do a lot of leading you to what's going to happen throughout this movie and you know that this is coming up. This is where I'm kind of like, I want more ass kicking. This is where I find that they're spending a lot of time doing some of the building and explanation. They're introducing the police officer. They're introducing the mafia people. And I just want him to start messing people up. Yeah, but they're not, they're not, I, I agree, first of all. They're also not really telling us anything about these people. They're just kind of moving pieces around on a chessboard here. And it's like, can we get some, you know, something that gives us an insight into these people's like motivations or. I found that especially so for the police officer. I was really confused. They spend a lot of time on this character and we'll talk about it more soon. But I didn't understand where they brought so much of the police officer in and the police officer's relationship, which is strange too. So we'll get into that. The mafia boss, they leave really shallow and I'm kind kind of okay with. I don't know if you're supposed to care for that character at all. You know he's going to be against our vigilante here. Yeah, and uh, he actually heads out to dinner with his girlfriend. John catches a glimpse of them entering the restaurant. Now, uh, when they're at the table, because he's a classy guy, Pontavini excuses himself from the table to take a giant shit. Before I start a new meal, I better get rid of the one I had last night. <laughs> <laughs> he says he needs to make room. Uh, I noticed when he went into the washroom, they had a classy feature that I haven't seen in many washrooms. What did they have on the on the wall of that washroom? Oh, fuck. I, whatever it was, I didn't notice it. What was it? Hangers. They have hangers to take off your jacket. What a classy... Oh, that's a classy great place. idea. Yeah, on the wall, they had these hangers. He's wearing, a, he's wearing a business suit, so he takes off his jacket to go do his business. And there's a very large garbage can in the middle of the bathroom. Yes, there is. Uh, <laughs> like, absurdly large. 
far. <laughs> now, okay, I have so many questions about this. So first of all, Pontevini's bodyguard did a quick sweep of the bathroom, like a professional that he is, but he didn't check that giant garbage can, where John has somehow been hiding despite seeing them enter the restaurant from the outside. So my question is, even if he had somehow gotten in there and gotten, I guess they wouldn't know who he was, he can get past him to the washroom. Where did he put the garbage? Also, is he just sitting in there getting garbage thrown on him until Pontevini <laughs> comes in? What is his fucking plan? And when Pontevini comes in, how does he know it's him? It's not like he introduces himself as he walks into the bathroom. I'm Pontevini and I'm here to take a shit. Like what, what on earth? None of this makes any sense. So this garbage can is huge enough that I feel like he could be in there with the garbage bag. So that, that one I think explains that question. Number two, I think, yes, he probably would have had to sit there quietly and accept garbage being thrown on him. Conveniently, I think Pontevini gets into that bathroom quickly. I don't think there would have been a ton of other people in there. The third one is a very good question. I think what happens is when that person goes in the stall, he comes out and he does peek over. Like he goes to confirm it's the guy he thinks it is. I wonder if he did this for each person who came in before. Maybe. I mean, <laughs> I get like my only thought was that maybe after his bodyguard checks the bathroom, maybe he could be like, all clear, Mr. Pontevini, something. Uh, but you know what? Yes. Including that would at least answer that question. We shouldn't have to be trying to figure out how this happened. They should be kind of helping us along with that, and they're doing a terrible fucking job. <laughs> uh, anyway, he's got some heroin or something that he drugs Pontevini with as soon as he comes out of the stall. I don't know fucking know where he got that. Then he drags him out the window. We fade out and back in to Pontevini chained up in a warehouse. John wheels an industrial meat grinder underneath him and turns it on just to show him and us how it works. I actually like the shot of just the meat grinder being pushed and Pontevini getting upset without him seeing Johnny. He doesn't know who's here. It's interesting when, like, Johnny sort of reveals himself after placing it under him. He's like, who the fuck are you? He really has no idea. Yeah, Pontevini but wants to know what's going on, and so do I. <laughs> I don't know what the fuck's happening. Um, we find out really quickly that this is a shakedown for money. Yeah, John explains that Michael in the hospital needs the money that the mob has been taking out of his paycheck all these years, which feels like a bit of a stretch to me, but like... I mean, Michael works for the doc people who have been having to pay, so I guess kind of that's true. I don't know. Whatever. Pontevini says, no problem. He's got money back at his house. Gives John a key, the address, the instructions for how to open the safe. Anything else I should know, John asks, and Pontevini says, nope. I feel like that might come back to haunt him later. Mm, that dog, he probably should have mentioned his attack dog. Oh, yeah, and as soon as John goes to the house, surprise, there's an attack dog. Now, this is a pretty decent action scene. Yeah, I actually like this one. Uh, it's dark. They set up John sort of walking through the house. You're wondering when that dog's going to pounce or attack. It's not until John makes it quite a ways through the house and gets into the kitchen and notices the dog bowl that we have that attack. And I like that dog bowl as a trigger for the attack. That was kind of a clever way to, to show it. This uh, like vicious dog who's trained to attack takes John down for a second. It's, it's kind of looking bad for him, but what is he able to grab onto or locate? This scene unfortunately ends with John killing the dog off screen, thank goodness, with an electric turkey carver. Now, I like how uh, afterwards he wipes down the turkey carver to get rid of his prints, but he has left a shit ton of forensic evidence all over this house, <laughs> like blood, <laughs> hair, you know. Yeah, I was wondering that too. And I, I wrote it off kind of as we're like late 70s, early 80s, and yeah. they didn't have the DNA technology. Like they were fingerprinting, but they weren't doing DNA as why he wasn't. Otherwise, if they were doing DNA, they would have caught him immediately right yeah. like there was yeah. so much of his dna everywhere well either way uh he's not happy with pontevini so into the grinder he goes <laughs> 
He just goes back, doesn't say anything, just turns it on and drops him in. We get some like gratuitous shots of what are clearly like ground meat. Oh, it's like stock footage. Of yeah. <laughs> yeah. Piling out of this thing. It's pretty funny. Yeah, man. From there, we cut to Detective Dalton at the hospital. He's hoping to talk to somebody, but I have no idea who. It's not Michael. It's not the gang member he shot because he's dead. It's not the other two because they're still presumably tied up. And it's not Pontivini because uh, him getting his legs at least ground up into hamburger wouldn't explain why this guy the detective is visiting has his whole upper body covered in bandages. Like, legit, who is this? Who's trying to talk to? Oh, it is Pontivini. Dude, there's 0% chance that someone found Pontivini in this abandoned warehouse and he hadn't bled to death from getting his legs gored up in a meat No, grinder. he lives. He there's lives no, There's that. no fucking Absolutely way. Absolutely he does. No chance. That is him in the no, bed. No, sir, he does not. It can't be. <laughs> We're getting another statue after this episode, that's for sure. I'm pretty sure it's Pontivini. This is where our police officer meets the doctor who's taking care of Pontivini. Well, this is my theory. Maybe Detective Dalton's just there looking for some trim. Well, he, uh, that's he, what turns out. That's he, well, what, he, yeah. he asked this lady doctor if she wants to grab something to eat, and she says yes. Which, do they know each other? Did he just meet her? Uh, so I Is her shift over? I like, have a giant what the fuck written in my notes. I don't understand the purpose of bringing this doctor into the story or having them build a relationship. A lot of this feels like padding to me. All of this. All of these scenes with the <laughs> detective and the doctor padding. But there is a reason. There is something they're setting up that happens later. Now, from there, we get to what is by far the most uncomfortable sequence in this movie. We cut to Times Square where a very sleazy looking dude picks up a girl who I'm not totally sure is a hooker to do some hooking. It seems like he's trying to convince her to like. I, I at first thought he was a pimp. Like that was my yeah. my understanding of who he was. But he takes her back to a strange place. They end up calling it a chicken house. So a, a chicken hawk, as I understand it. I don't know if a chicken hawk is the guy who picks up the young male prostitute if the chicken hawk is the young male prostitute but i know that a chicken hawk is i meant would assume to be... it would be the person who picks up and the chicken is the young boy okay quite possibly uh before they go there she asks what she has to do and he says well, 100 bucks maybe you don't ask questions come on but i think i would ask some questions yeah, yeah. um in the movie they sort of throw down 20 dollars as the standard for a encounter with one of the prostitutes yep so 100 does sound a lot more than that but i, I think he's gonna be expecting something yeah yeah i think he'd still want to ask some questions too well basically at this sex club uh one of this sleazy guy's best customers wants her to like pay him basically as part of a threesome she is not on board with this which is understandable, although at the same time, going back to the $100, like, what was she expecting to happen when she got there? She probably didn't have a lot of choice, though, right? Like, if this is someone she knows on the street or if she needs that $100, she's going to do stuff that might put her at risk. And this turns out really bad for her. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, speaking of not having any choices, she wants to leave, but the sleazebag owner won't let her and instead offers to discipline her while the pervy customer watches. He ends up doing more than just watching, though, as he burns her with a soldering iron. Thankfully, they don't show it. You hear some screams, and then they cut away, but uh, just horrible. The creepy guy who is there, his best customer, I think is the one who brings that. We get some more information on that later. Yeah. Uh, from here, we go back to more date padding. As the doctor and detective share a kiss, then we get a morning news report about Pontivini's death. No. Yes. Pontivini's death. I'm still going with the story that Pontivini died in hospital after Jesus Christ. being pulled in there. Whatever. Now, amazingly, this part is crazy. This is a crazy bit of trivia for this movie. The newsman in the movie, actual ABC New York news anchorman Roger Grimsby. 
he signed on for this movie and he must have been horrified when he saw the final product here. <laughs> Especially considering that this scene pretty much comes up right after like a straight up mutilation. Yeah, and it is right in a newsroom. This feels like out of a late 70s. He's a, he's sure. a real yeah. newsman. Yeah. So he reports that a vigilante is claiming responsibility for the death and has issued a warning to criminals, which uh, A, seems like a very sudden leap. And B, we learn has rankled some government higher-ups. This is strange, right? I mean, vigilantialism is always looked down upon. The higher-ups here, the people in the government, I think it's both government officials and the CIA, are really just worried about getting re-elected. We're halfway through this movie, and now we're suddenly bringing in like a government conspiracy? Like, what's happening? There's layering <laughs> things on here. Yeah, they are going for a lot. In this movie, they are shooting really high. Swinging for the fences. <laughs> yeah. So this guy's going to handle it for the government. We cut from a direct shot of this handler walking into the camera to John walking through Times Square where he happens upon the same hooker who just got burned and he agrees to go on a date with her. This surprised me because he doesn't seem like that kind of John. <laughs> I see what you've done there. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, he's, he's definitely... I don't know if he's interested in the sex act itself. They haven't showed him having any relationships or wanting one. His relationship with Michael's wife is a little bit weird, but I don't interpret it to be him wanting any physical uh, attention from her. I interpreted this scene as he wanted to help this woman. But help her how? He clearly gets to a place where he wants to help her, but that first initial contact where he agrees to go on a date with her, what what is he hoping to do? I think maybe he's hoping that he can get her off the street for a bit and have, have a talk with her, see if he can get her out of this life. Either way, they go to a sleazy hotel and the guy behind the counter, get a spot ready for him on the bad acting Mount Rushmore because <laughs> he is awful. Uh, both laying on an accent. What is, is his accent? He sounds yeah. like a cartoon character. Yeah, he, it's absurd. It's one of those where a room is supposed to cost like, Five dollars for the hour, but because he wants clean sheets and needs a deposit and everything, it costs him twenty five. Fuck, dude, that's incredible. Yeah, his his quote exact quote is clean sheets five bucks extra, five bucks deposit on the sheets. You want the sheets? Holy <laughs> lord, what what is this? Yeah, this guy's atrocious. He's one of the worst we've ever seen. Once they get in the room and she gets undressed, he sees the burn and wants to know what happened. So we're kind of getting towards what you're saying here. Because after she tells him, while unsuccessfully attempting to cry, uh, it's <laughs> yeah, not, that's not good. Yeah. He tells her he's going to make it all better and that no one's ever going to hurt her again. Ever? That seems like a pretty big promise. Is he going to marry this girl? Like rescue her from the hooker game where you get her in some computer classes? Like, come on. I can only assume that that's what happens. Right? They don't <laughs> They don't go back. I don't think we see this relationship again. No, that's what I mean. It's a huge promise. But I, I'm assuming that uh, that's what happened. That John goes back uh, after he's finished with his vigilantism and rescues this woman. It's like a super low-budget version of Pretty Woman. Yes. Well, regardless, at this point, we've officially transitioned from I'm getting revenge for my injured friend to I will end all crime in the city of New York. <laughs> Again, this is uh, a huge jump. And we start getting into John getting ready to end that crime. We get some sort of prep scenes here well, you know when i'm a huge fan of the uh like gearing up scenes we're kind of that's what this is here well except okay we get him modifying some bullets he's drilling holes in the end and filling them with mercury in order to like 
poison the people he shoots, I guess. Like, the bullets aren't going to fucking get the job done. I think they, they make larger wounds that don't heal. So okay. he's sort of, like, trying to explode and really end these people. Either way, this scene is, like, 10 minutes long. Padding. It's padding. <laughs> you could have fit all this into a 45-second-long gear-up montage. Would have improved the pace and made it more enjoyable for you. Tell me I'm wrong. Uh, that's hilarious because I kind of like these scenes as he's getting ready to take down. It gives me a chance to sort of reflect on some of what's been happening. A lot of action was happening super quickly. And I'm like thinking about this movie and I'm like, there's been some interesting camera angles. The music and sound and creepy builds have been like kind of keeping me in here. It's still moving slowly. I'm still confused about why certain characters and relationships there, but I'm okay with this scene. You are such a whore for any scenes involving someone gearing up for something. <laughs> you are just open for business. It's got to be one of my weaknesses, montage. eh? Yeah. yeah. It, no, it doesn't have to be a montage. Seeing someone prep to take something on is like something I love. I don't know why. I don't know why either. Uh, <laughs> he goes to this sex club, tells the sleazy owner that he's got some chicken for sale, and after confirming that he is, in fact, a dirtbag, attacks him, ties him up, pours lighter fluid on him, and burns him to death. Now, not only that, but in an incredible coincidence, the same perv from before is in the club about to do something terrible to a teenage boy. After another quick flashback, John blows him away and sets the kid free after first covering him with a towel, which is decent of him. Yeah, the teenage boy's really traumatized here. Um, it's my interpretation that the boy had been abused already. And they kind of insinuate the abuse is using that soldering iron. God damn. Yeah. Yeah. So, so pretty awful. You're happy to see that person go. We find out very quickly who that creepy guy was. Yeah, he's like some kind of senator, a yeah. state senator. He's a New Jersey senator. So the government, this conspiracy yeah. has got legs. Clearly, the writers of this movie don't think highly of politicians, that's for sure. No, we learn all this at the crime scene. This whole conversation happens from a wall that's just covered in pictures of. It's just, it's all it is. They're having this serious talk about government conspiracy. And I'm like, I'm, my, I can't help it. My eyes are like drifting past them to like fucking guys hanging dong on the wall. The walls of that sex house definitely had lots of D's uh, sticking yeah, out there. Oh that, my was, God. that was a lot of, it's true. Um, Putting the D this, in decoration. What was this? <laughs> <laughs> what was this rated as a movie? Uh, God damn it. <laughs> um, I have to assume gotta be R. that it was R or above, right? There's it some has pretty to be. gratuitous or graphic stuff in here. We also find out that the media has given John a name, The Exterminator. Thank you. <laughs> and, this uh, is where they work it in. Yeah. Oh, fuck oh, yeah. yeah. Love it. Meanwhile, back at the station house, Detective Dalton gets a call from his doctor friend, and they discuss the case while he cooks a hot dog using electricity from his lamp. I have so many questions about this. How what is the thing? <laughs> this was funny. He has um, a fork or two forks attached to the wires of his lamp, and he puts the hot dog in between to complete the circuit, and then turns it on, and it cooks his hot dog for him. It's incredible. I'm guessing, like they're saying, he doesn't have enough time to sit and take care of himself. Right, trying that's, to catch the exterminator. Yeah, that's what his job's all about. So. This is the tough life of a New York City detective. But he does have time to go for date number two with his doctor friend. And after she bumps into a friend of hers from her war protesting days, they have a conversation about the Vietnam War. Kind of bringing this full circle a bit here. Turns out that he served himself. And his theory is that the exterminator is a military veteran himself. Yes. And I start asking, is this a commentary on... Nom? Is it a commentary on New York City? Like, what is the goal of this movie? What are we trying to say? It does seem like it's very critical of the Vietnam War, but it also seems like it's really critical of the way New York and has been organized and things have happened. 
Yeah, I think there's a strong connection there for sure. Now, from there, we get a scene of three members of that same gang from earlier robbing an old lady who decided to go grocery shopping late at night for some reason. It seems like a terrible choice. Yeah, she's walking through a park kind of alone with her groceries in hand, and of course, the ghetto ghouls knock her down. Yeah, a guy on a motorcycle shows up just as they're leaving. They pull a knife on him, and he kind of backs away, but he does enough to sort of keep that woman from taking any more harm. I think they steal her money, but they leave her on the ground with her groceries, so at least she has that. She does. Now, the exterminator shows up and steals this guy's motorcycle and chases down their car. They assume it's the same guy, but he flips his helmet up, tells them, you must be thinking somebody else, friend. <laughs> and blows one of them away. This is not much for a one-liner, eh? No, actually, um, I, I even have in my notes that his delivery lacks a lot of flair. I was thinking about other movies we had watched and some of the people who have great delivery, right? I was thinking about Arnold. I was thinking about Charles Bronson, right? I was yeah. like, this is a very poor man's Bronson. It's, it's actually oh, what God, came it's up to me homeless man's right Bronson, come on. <laughs> yeah, it was really bad. Now, these other two take off, but they crash the car. The exterminator goes at them, but flips the bike over a railing. They come back to run him down, but he shoots a hole through the driver and the back windshield. We get an explosion for some reason? Out of nowhere? Yeah, I think they kind of crashed the car. I actually rewound it at this point because I was hoping that the gun didn't explode the car because you know how I feel about that. But I think it did. Like, the, the explosion causes the car to swerve off and smash through a different railing, and, and then the car explodes. Now, that explosion makes sense. That's a massive <laughs> car crash. Why was there an explosion when he shot through the guy and through the back windshield? Yeah, I don't know. Um... I think maybe we can sort of interpret the mercury in the bullet might be having a reaction is what they're trying to get us to think about. But I mean, I'm no scientist, but that does not track with me. Yeah, I don't know. When this is all said and done, Detective Dalton surveys the crime scene and gets a visit from a CIA agent who's yeah. there to give him some information and encourage him that this problem needs to be dealt with. The detective basically tells him to fuck off, then calls the doctor to set up another date. She's on call, but invites him to come nail her in the hospital. <laughs> Midnight admission, it's called. Yeah, I. this was hilarious. They didn't show, and well, they showed a little bit of their scene together. They didn't show anything gratuitous, right? It's so strange. I still don't understand. I know that the doctor is in there for what's going to happen in a moment, but they could have just had him go to check on people in the hospital. They didn't have to introduce this doctor character. This is how this all comes together, though, because we cut right to it. The two of them walk past the janitor who clearly knows what's going on here. Yeah. And they enter the hospital room complete with adjustable bed. Also at the hospital, John, who came to see Michael. He saw the doctor's report and it confirmed it. Michael is paralyzed for life. Now, this is the big emotional climax of this movie where John asked Michael if he wants him to pull him off life support. And Michael, by blinking, tells him yes. How did you feel during this deeply dramatic scene? They didn't sell it for me. Not even a little bit. No, no, no. I was not like, obviously, I don't want to see someone die, which is, I mean, this is a movie full of death. But the character who you thought was going to be a badass in this movie ends up paralyzed and then his friend ends his life. It happened really quickly and he's trying to be a good friend, but he does it without a lot of thinking about it or consulting Michael's family. Like he doesn't talk to his wife at all Not even or remember, like try no. to get that. He has to go break that to her. Before that happens, though, him pulling the plug sets off an alarm at the nurse's station and brings the doctor running. Now the detective is really going to want to catch this guy because it interrupted their little session there. <laughs> I interpreted that they were finished, but maybe not. No, no, uh, maybe. Because no. he's, he's still trying to pull his pants out, trying to get dressed. Well, the funny part is the 
the detective and John have a little bit of an interaction in the hall where John tells him that his fly is undone. Yeah, man. And uh, the detective sees John enter the elevator. When the doctor comes back and tells him someone cut the cable, he correctly assumes the man he just saw was the exterminator and runs out after him. He gets to the station, makes a call to see if he can get a positive ID on John, and then gears himself up with a big shotgun. (laughs) Yeah, this is like an automatic shotgun. This is a no-nonsense kind of gun. I think he uses some support from the computer guy to determine that John has to be the suspect. We find out that, one, he served with Mike in the military, and two, he owns a pair of boots that uh, were on one of the other's sort of crime scene. So they've determined that John is the guy and they're going to go to his apartment and find him. Now, th- this shotgun that the detective pulls out, mm-hmm. he pulls it out of like a case that he's got underneath some of his own stuff. Does everyone who was in the Vietnam War just have their own like cache of guns that they either brought back with them or acquired later? Like I don't understand. Is this his gun or is it a police gun? No, it's his. This is definitely a personal collection of guns. And but we- he stores it at the police station? Yeah, sort of in his locker area uh, is what I interpreted. But you're right. They are sort of insinuating that in the movie that all sort of veterans have their own gun case that have all kinds of things. They did show John's earlier. And it had a huge collection of guns. He did even have a like a a syringe with things to knock people out. So you had mentioned earlier where he got that from. That was actually in his case of like ready military gear. Okay. Here we get that scene we were talking about where John breaks the news to Michael's family. He does a much better job this time. He tells her he has to tell her something. He asks her to sit down. But my question is, why the fuck didn't the hospital call her? That is interesting. I didn't think about why it didn't get communicated to her. The hospital might have called her in or done something rather than have it there. They also might think they're liable. If something happened with their uh, machines, maybe they were calling in the lawyers before they went and admitted anything. Oh, interesting. That's a good theory. But again, why are we having to come up with these theories? Come on, (laughs) filmmakers. Uh, So Detective Dalton's hunch has panned out, like you mentioned. His source calls him back, confirms the connection between Michael and John. So that morning, he and the most poorly equipped SWAT team ever <laughs> storm John's apartment. They bring they're, a bus. They bring a bus. Dude, they're in like hunting vests. And a couple of them don't even have hunting vests. There's, there's no tactical gear. And they, they bring a school bus with them on it. And they pile out the back of the school bus for dramatic effect. Yeah. Now, John is not there. But when he returns from seeing Michael's wife... He spots the cops watching his place and kind of peels off. He calls the apartment and Dalton answers the phone. When he does, John says to meet him at the Brooklyn Navy Yard, crane number five, and come alone. What he doesn't know is that the government handler we saw earlier has a tap on the phone line and heard it all. So even if Dalton does come alone, they're going to have company. Now, why does the government have a tap on John's phone? Yeah, this doesn't make sense at all. Right, because they just figured out it was John. There's no way that the CIA has tapped every single possible suspect's phone. So, yeah, this one is purely so we can create the end scene of the movie. Yeah, and that's what we get next. Dalton goes to meet him. The exterminator gets the drop on him, but is apparently going to surrender. But then a government sniper shoots Dalton for some reason. Why is he shooting Detective Dalton? Yeah, this is interesting. I think they don't want evidence. Clearly, the CIA is there to close down this exterminator, and they don't want anyone to have sort of knowledge of or help it. I think they want it to go away completely. But it doesn't make sense that he's he shoots to kill the police officer who's about to catch the exterminator. Well, it also doesn't make sense because everyone knew he was working on the exterminator case. So if he suddenly shows up dead, they're going to be like, the exterminator killed him. Or something. he's going to keep it alive. He's not going to kill it. 
Yeah, it's it true. No I don't sense. know. It is it is really strange. I was trying to interpret whether the shot was meant for the exterminator and catches Dalton by accident, but it doesn't appear that that's no. true. No. no. Uh, Dalton's still alive for now. He tells John to get out of there. John takes like two steps, lingers, then immediately gets shot and falls over the side of the crane into the water. Dalton yells, no! <laughs> Stands up and gets shot again himself. Then the sniper blows up Dalton's car. Yeah, one shot with a sniper blows up the car. So I thought it was going to happen earlier, and it definitely happens here. So I'm grumpy. Rifle, though. Maybe shot the gas tank. He's got a sniper. He's got a scope. It's a rifle. It's more plausible than a little stubby fucking Charles Bronson gun. <laughs> anyway, the last line of the movie is the voice of this handler, I guess, who says, Washington will be pleased. And I'm like, maybe if they had bothered to confirm the kill, but they didn't. And we see John wash up on the side of the bay and take off his jacket to reveal the bulletproof vest underneath. And you know what that means? The exterminator too. <laughs> I just interpreted it meant that he was going to go take that woman and get her into like computer classes. That That is a plot of the exterminator too. Yeah. Like I said, it's a romantic, shitty, pretty woman. <laughs> no. Uh, and then more of that soft country music takes us out to the credits. I don't know, man. Like this is <laughs> several things have gone wrong here. Oh. I feel. Yeah. So I had heard about this movie before. I thought it was going to be like absurdly graphic, and I think it probably is for a 1980s film. But thinking about the movie and reflecting on it, I'm glad you sort of mentioned Death Witch because it it really did feel like they were trying to go for a gritty movie where one man sort of stamps everything out. And it just did not deliver. I, I kind of shit on the Charles Bronson movie we watched. I didn't love it when we watched I mean, it. To be fair, Murphy's Law is on the very low end of the Charles Bronson like cinematic uh, oeuvre. Yeah, but it's definitely way better than this. That's a bad sign. If yeah. Murphy's Law is way better than this movie, you're in, you're in a bad place. Speaking of how bad the movie is, it's time. We're going to rate the movie like we always do. Scale of 1 to 10, we do it twice. 1 to 10 for how bad, 1 to 10 for how enjoyable. And the hope, the goal, is to find a movie that's 10 out of 10 on both scales, or as we call it, the Crit 20. And I will say right now, for me, that's in play for this movie, because I have this as a 10 bad. There are no name actors in this at all, and the ones who, like the actors who are in there, generally do a pretty terrible job. Glaring plot holes, extremely low budget effects. It's just it like again, I'm I'm framing it through the lens of like Death Wish, but so so much worse. It's a low budget movie, it's a cash grab. I'm giving it a ten bad. And I feel like you might agree with me on this. It's ten bad. There you go. <laughs> I'm not gonna I'm not gonna hold that one out. This happens a lot actually. I find whenever you throw down a ten, I'm almost always there. Uh the acting was horrible, the effects were horrible, I found it slow. Uh, and you're right, there's a lot of stuff that happened where we had to connect the dots well beyond what should be expected, especially expected of an audience for that style of movie, right? Yes, In terms yeah. of what we're saying. Um, I guess we always have to rate bad, and then we also have to rate enjoyability. So I always go up first for this one. This is where I thought poor, poor man's Bronson. Um, lots of unnecessary scenes. The ending really annoyed me. Sure. I thought it was awful. In terms of things that I thought were okay, I thought there was some creative uh, cinematography. Like, I thought some interesting shots. They used a lot of crane or, or above work, you're yep. right. A lot of close-ups. I like some of the gritty choices they made. It was an interesting way to kind of have a take on New York City and Vietnam. Uh, saying all of that, I think my enjoyability rating was a four. Oh, my God. That's so low. Yeah. Okay. I don't have it nearly as bad as you. I have this as a seven. Oh, wow. Because I still enjoy, like... One Man War on Crime. I'm, I'm a fan of those movies. <laughs> there were a couple of nice transitions, a couple of nice camera shots. 
I love New York City. I love reading about New York City in the late 70s, early 80s. I love like watching anything where that's the setting. That period of time fascinates me like to no end. And the fact that it's set there and the fact that you're seeing a lot of the kind of gritty street stuff that people who lived through that time talk about a lot, like that to me made it a little more enjoyable. This movie makes a lot of big <laughs> leaps that kind of, for me, take me out of it a little bit, but I'm still going to give it a seven. Uh, how about this beer? Yeah, the Flashback Beer by Fork River Brewing Company. I enjoyed it. Uh, I found it easy to drink. Uh, I really like the American wheat beer style. has a really oaty uh, flavor and taste to it. I like the way that it finishes. It's not extremely bitter. I think the bitterness might have come from the the rhubarb. Uh, how did you feel about it? So this is what I was kind of wondering because I, again, I still don't know what rhubarb tastes like. Having drank this beer, I cannot tell you what it tastes like right now. But I did think that compared to other wheat beers I've had, this one did have almost more of like a sour component to it, mm-hmm. which made me enjoy it a lot. As you know, I love sours. Um, I think that's the rhubarb. If this is what rhubarb tastes like, I'm actually have to give some rhubarb a shot. I don't know. I think you should. I think we should try some more beers from uh, Forked River for sure. And if uh, you have them available to you, uh, definitely check them out. Sure. And uh, speaking of giving things a shot, next week, I don't know if I want to call it a sci-fi classic, but this movie is very well known. This was actually a request from one of our listeners. We're going to be uh, giving Flash Gordon a shot next week. Flash Gordon. Uh, I don't know a lot about this. I thought it was a comic book or a serial at one point. I believe so, yeah. Comic strip, maybe? I don't know. Yeah, and so uh, I think it involves space, but no... Sure does. Not a lot else. Yeah, space, aliens. Uh, there's like moons, many moons. I don't know. <laughs> All right, I'm excited to try it out uh, or to, to watch it uh, and see how it goes. Me too, absolutely. And that's going to do it for this week. If you have not already, please follow us on Twitter and Instagram at the BMB Podcast. And uh, if you want to send us any suggestions, feel free to send them to the DMs of our social media or send us an email at the BMB Podcast at gmail.com. We haven't had a lot of email action, but this one I think did actually happen that way. I think we overestimated the amount that people still use email to communicate, uh, but appreciate that email request. It's there. If you if you want to stick with email, it's we got one for you. We're going to hook you up. <laughs> Uh, But that's going to do it for this week. Like I said, thank you so much for listening. I'm Cooper. And I'm Nolan. And we'll see you next time on Bad Movies and Beer. Keep it grindy. Oh, oh, grindy. They're going to say gritty. I just thought the grinder was maybe the most impactful. The man they pushed too far.